friends come in have a seat today we're talking about silver juice with cass and max hello 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 and as always monty right here beside me hello to you as well hello what's up guys thank you for having us we're excited to spurg out about david berman yeah of course i mean knowing the conversations that you and i have had off mic this was definitely one of the ones i thought about when i talked to monty about starting a show because i feel like we've had the you know, Asperger's silver juice conversation uh, mm-hmm. at least once in the past. So I guess we can get right into it. Um, how, Cass, we can start with you, self-proclaimed word cell. Uh, what was your first, your first experience with the silver juice? I definitely discovered them late. Like, I feel like I'd like vaguely heard of them before he died, but it was like around the time that Purple Mountains came out that I like really started listening to the whole back catalog. And then I was like, super mad at myself that I hadn't really deep dived sooner when he was still around. Um, but yeah, so I want to say it was like 2019 and then like into 2020 is like when I got really into them. Mm -hmm. So purple mountains was your first, your first experience. Um, kind of like, yeah, that it was like around the time the record came out and then he died like very soon after. And a lot of bands that I liked had been like covering him and some bands that I liked had covered them in the past. So I had like vaguely known about them, but I just like, for some reason, like, I feel like I'm, I'm so bad sometimes when it comes to like albums and music, like historically, I guess, cause this is like the digital era, if you will, I, will just like listen to a song and like that song, but I'm not like forced to listen to the whole LP or whatever. And then for some reason, I just like don't, <laughs> even though I love that song. And so I feel like I had liked a couple Silver Jews songs before that, but it wasn't until Purple Mountains came out that I was like, okay, let me like go back and actually listen to all this. And I was like, damn, this bangs. Like, what was I doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I had a similar trajectory as you where I lived with a bunch of guys who were really into uh silver juice and when that first single dropped they were all it was on in the house all the time because i lived with a bunch of guys who were 30 so how old were you at the time uh, i was like 27 27 yeah (laughs) yeah i was i was a just a child living with a bunch of men um yeah i would have been like 27 so i was definitely like at the at the you know the ripe age of beginning to listen to alt country so I think it was really, it, that really hit for an important time in me, uh, for me. Um, and I think that I always had kind of a weird, I, I had this with DOCs too. I just thought that they were in some kind of indie rock mainstay that I wasn't going to be interested in. And the album art didn't speak to me. So I was like, I'm going to put this off. And then as soon as Purple Mountains came out, I was like, Ooh, all my happiness is gone. I can get behind <laughs> something like that. And then and didn't he didn't cover them as well. Like, didn't Y cover random rules at one point? Oh, I don't think I ever Maybe heard that. Yeah, it's it's not as good as the Silver Juice version, but mm-hmm. it's pretty good. 
Yeah. And then he died. And then I was like, well, he must have really been about that shit then. Uh, and then I devoured Purple Mountains, uh, had my own little fun mental time and uh, moved in with my parents and just made my mom listen to Silver Jews all the time, which was what awesome. What did your say about it? Uh, well, her son was not doing so well. So she had uh, she had an initially strong negative opinion. And then over time, she she liked uh, Honk If You're Lonely. So I treated that as a win, even if it was kind of a Stockholm syndrome situation. <laughs> Max, I'll, I'll go to you next. I thought that I was champion autist about this sort of thing, but I realized over the last couple of days that you absolutely sunned me in terms of your uh, your relationship with David Berman and his work. So how did you how did you get into this sort of thing? I don't know. I've been I've been a Silver Juice fan for I don't know, probably since like college, but definitely. Uh, Purple Mountains came out like it was a an invitation to sort of dive deeper into you know the whole catalog and not just I don't know my favorite my favorite record is is Bright Flight which is like I think everyone is like everyone defaults to American Water which I get uh I think you know that's probably those two albums are probably the ones that you hear the most like if you're uh, like, like the people who found him through Spotify, like the, those are the ones that, yeah, that, like yeah. drive you to. But definitely, um, definitely, Purple Mountains was like a. I mean, I don't think that anyone comes close in the past maybe twenty years in terms of just like a perfect fucking album. Every at least you know lyrically wise, just unstoppable. And then when he yeah when after he committed suicide, that definitely was like all the homies. Uh, I it's funny. I'm like I'm from Austin. Hang out with a lot of musicians. Don't know a single fucking person in this city that that is like a rabid Silver Juice fan. So all my Silver Juice buddies are like online friends. Mm. You know, <laughs> after 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 that, we all just kind of like spurred out on it for a while on, on the group chat. But that definitely yeah. definitely doubled down after um. It's funny because like I knew like when Purple Mountains came out, like I knew that it was David Berman and the Silver Jews. I just hadn't like fully, fully gone down the rabbit hole at that point. But there were a lot of people who just like didn't even know that was the same project. Like I had some Zoomer uh, classmates on my master's program. And I remember in 2021, I went to the bar and this girl was like, oh, I just like found out about this really cool band called Purple Mountains. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at that point, that was like when I that was like two years later. Um, and I was like, Oh yeah. Like the silver juice. And she was like, what's that? <laughs> I was like, Oh honey. But it was good. Cause I got to silver juice pill her. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that my impression was that it was some kind of pavement side project. Yeah, and yeah. I know that he was not happy about that designation. Early, early on, like, you know, in college, that was sort of why I avoided going deep down into it was because I mean, I like pavement, but I don't like, everybody who <laughs> walks around on a pavement t-shirt this is usually annoying fucking people to be mm-hmm. honest his favorite band is pavement uh like my older brother claims that his favorite band is pavement that's not fucking true but you know <laughs> but it's like a classic cool signifier guy. for him <laughs> Mm-hmm. I actually do know some pavement super fans. One of my friends in the UK went to like every single one of their shows on this recent tour, like just followed them around. 
So Weird. I think pavement is one of those ones that's gotten some kind of revitalization through TikTok also. Like they put out a music video for just a B-side, I think the Harness Your Hopes, which yeah. is their most played song on Spotify that was just a B-side from Slanted and Enchanted, I think. But it got its name from a, a drawing Berman did when they lived together, like right after the EVA days. I did not know that. Uh, I heard it for the first time at a woman's apartment who was in college at the time. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so it was a it was a TikTok find for her, I think. I remember hearing it in a lot of like coffee shops a couple of years ago, like probably around the time that it took off on TikTok. I have no idea about this, but yeah, but we still know, like, even if we don't have it, like, it's like it makes its way onto the culture at large. Yeah, you know, I, I, it, I, I'm new to all of this. Uh, I haven't, I've, I've, I've seen on like, uh, like iTunes or whatever, the, uh, the Silver Jews, um, uh, like album covers and stuff. But I had no idea about like the, this being like a pavement side project or it being, um, like, like Purple Mountains. Like, I just like missed all that stuff. So, I, it's um it's a really ambitious project for like what it is and like we definitely like uh like i definitely have more to talk about like later on because it's like a we like to think of this as like a uh like indoctrination show it's like it's just like well, a crash course, course for someone who doesn't know like anything about it like just come on in just like spurg out so yeah th this is this is all this is all new and fresh to me this is cool so have you been listening like a lot this week in preparation yeah i've been listening to a lot it's um what I was saying earlier about the, like the Spotify audience uh, for like new bands nowadays, or like, but when you go and find like old bands, uh, there's they kind of have like a pecking order of like what uh, like their most popular hits, and like they kind of force you to listen to those. But um, the Natural Bridge, I think, is like excellent, like top to like from start to finish. Like that's definitely my favorite of like all of them. I mean, there's no bad album. I'll tell you that right now. Natural Bridge has got some. I don't know. Being from Texas, Dallas is an absolute banger. Uh, Dude. It's an evil yes. city. <laughs> okay, but my question about Dallas, because I know we've talked about this, and every time I listen to it, I'm like, what does he mean by that? The thing about, like, little cum buckets at her ankles? What is that? <laughs> yeah, we've, said, we've talked about this before. This is the one the one Berman lyric where, like, I can't... It's inscrutable. I have, I have no fucking idea what we're talking about here in terms of, like, you know, normally he's pretty, like, Particularly as you know him as a him as a poet, and Natural Bridge is sort of right around the time when he's putting out poetry collections and The Baffler, and about to get actual air published. Um, I have no fucking idea what what he meant by that. No, I'll say that the the genius annotation is less than helpful. Also, what do uh, we got? So he was quoted as saying. It was an interview for a zine called Chapter 57 that was published around the time of Tanglewood Numbers. But he noted that the word come shows up three times on the album. It says, uh, when I was a kid, people always used to say come bucket. It made a picture in my mind, come slopped over the edges. I forgot about the word for years until forming this album. It came up again and kept sneaking into songs. Come is a very private issue. The natural bridge has a lot of privacy issues going on inside. Yeah. Okay. So he was just like, hi. When he yeah. wrote it, <laughs> playing around. No, no, he, just, it's, he got called out for his foot fetishism, and uh, he's he's covering his tracks mm -hmm. by Absolutely. doing the opposite yeah. of covering his tracks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's like he's walking it back after the fact. It's like, oh no, I wasn't trying to like uh, like loose on your arches. No, <laughs> it's a very sensitive topic to me. 
Yeah, I feel like that genre of guy comes up a little bit in this uh, this sort of indie rock scene because I know Jeff Mangum talks about semen a lot on that uh, Neutral Milk Hotel record too. Uh, my little brother actually, uh, we were we were definitely very big into that shit, uh, like high school, and that was back um, when what's not Instagram, Snapchat, when mm-hmm. when that was like becoming a thing, and you had to like you know make like a username. My little brother's username for Snapchat for years was uh, Jeff Mancom. Hey. Yeah, and like <laughs> uh, Mac, like I feel like this is relevant to one of our other autistic special music interests. Why? I mean, Yanni Wolf is like very open about his weird foot fetish, like throughout his <laughs> lyrics and his album covers and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So the perfect yeah. Scandinavian feet. I yeah, and also yeah, and I'm pretty sure he said that elephant eyelash in that same was that the same album i think it's the same one um like the, it's called elephant eyelash and then he mentions it in the song and someone was like what does elephant eyelash mean not to go off on a y tangent but he said that it meant boner i was like how but he had this whole explanation for how pricking up an elephant eyelash meant boner all of these guys are just weird sex freaks at the end of the day yeah. That's the only like, reason anybody gets into indie rock, I think. That's true. What's weird is Dave seems like very outside of little glowing cum buckets on her ankle. <laughs> There's very little sort of sexual. That's true. About to, Dave. to any of Dave's work, like whether that's like even his poetry is very. He talks around it, but he doesn't really like. He doesn't get very explicit uh, with it. And maybe maybe kind of pointing towards why uh, I don't know he did an interview back in like 2018 or so like the you know as the lead up for Purple Mountains someone asked him like you know what what are you what are you doing now these days and he's like well you know like I've been reading a lot of Bukowski because that's a guy that I just completely fucking wrote off for most of my existence. Uh, because of their fan because of because of fans. yeah well because of his sort of notoriety and, and the, the people that sort of champion mm-hmm. but that's funny because like similar to the pavement thing like dave was just like i'm not going to read bukowski because i hate bukowski guys yeah <laughs> fair completely fair i think i mean i don't know if you've ever hung out with a, a self-proclaimed bukowski guy at you know in like the college days but they're usually fucking menaces oh yeah just like purposely evil I saw a tweet today, actually, that was like, why are there no Bukowskis in this day and age? Like, wouldn't it be so easy for some guy to be like, you know, the 2020s version of Bukowski? And then I forget who it was. One of my mutuals, it might have been Glenn BC. I'm not sure. But someone was like, because in this day and age, um, you like if you're if you go home and you're like a drunk like Bukowski, you don't have the creative space to channel that into poetry. There's too much noise. Like you can just turn mm. on the TV, you can yeah, that was, scroll Twitter, you know. Glenn, yeah, Glenn Glenn posted something. Yeah. Got it too. I think it was about like there's no like there's there's nothing beautiful about getting shit based alone at home. And, and shit posting on Twitter. Like there's no, right. there's it's no just, beauty in that. It's our era. Yeah. But like when he posted that, I was like, that's so true. But I'd never really thought about it that way before. And I feel like that's why a lot, this is another tangent, sorry, but why a lot of like alt lit kind of falls flat. Cause it, it kind of just feels like you're just like shit posting in a poem. And I'm not exempt from that. Mm. I do that too. But <laughs> I agree with you with the autofiction thing. It's just like getting shit house in your room and like, uh, like talking about it. It's like, um, 
like the like the shit posting that goes on with like drunk accounts is like sometimes can be like some of my favorite tweets are just like off the off the rocker like uh like like you're like seven drinks deep um nothing off and uh but it's channeling that into like a Bukowski like book of like a like you're not gonna write like Bukowski in the three hundred pound whore uh in shit posts I mean it, 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 I guess it could be like transmutated into like a different medium but I don't know it's like uh that in that style it's not going to exist anymore it's just going to come out like drills book where it's yeah. just shit posts printed out that and makes then me think, like you know when you read like the say like collected letters of writers from generations past whether that's their letters to other writers or like their love letters or whatever and that just feels like such a lost medium in this day and age like what would we have now like our collected dms like it's not the same yeah. <laughs> I mean, Mozart was writing some fucked up, disgusting letters, like save her farts for him, shit like that. Like they all were, they were all into that. Napoleon. Uh, so you, we talked about shit posting a little bit. Um, I want to ask you guys as two, I would say, award-winning acclaimed shit posters yourselves. I find a lot of humor in Silver Juice songs. I wanted to ask if that's something that you guys uh, have picked up on as well, and what you think the role of humor is in his writing. I'll let you shoot. Uh, you got you got the. We've both read actual air, but I think she's probably a little more invested in the. Um. Yeah. No. I mean, I love the fact that his his writing, both his lyrics and his poetry, have that element of humor. There's like, I feel like there's this nice tightrope between darkness and levity. Um. So it never feels too dark, even when it is, and. Yeah, I don't I mean that's the kind of writing that I like the most. Like kind of dark humor, little kind of you know, moments of sarcasm or jokiness or whatever followed up by like a gut punch of a line, you know? Um and that's always what's what I've like liked about his work. And this is a separate rabbit hole. We can go down that later or whatever. But it is really interesting comparing his other writing, like his poetry and stuff, to his lyrics, because the lyrics definitely give it like a certain scaffolding, like his lyrics rhyme when his poetry doesn't, you know, so it, it's really interesting of like how he uses that as like a narrative device. But no, I totally agree. I, I love the humor in his work. And I feel like it keeps it from going off the edge of being like depressing, even when like the themes are depressing, you know. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes it's cartoony and completely goofy. I think he plays around with a lot of that stuff, but even like in, um, and that's just the way that I feel the, I met failure in Australia. I fell ill in Illinois, nearly lost my genitalia to an anthill in Des Moines, which is like a <laughs> Shel Silverstein poem. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not what I think you would expect from the same guy who wrote the stars don't shine upon us. We're in the way of their light. Like it's such a difference between the two his two modes of thought, I guess. Max, what do, what do you think about that? You know, he's got a way that he kind of plays with, I think I think this is a pretty common thing that we do, um, sort of playing with irony. Because the reality is like, you can't, you can't go all the time, like full bore depression and have it be meaningful, you know? I don't know. He maybe it's just me, but it it's a very um. I've all I always get you know out drinking at the bar or something, and you know make a sort of dark comedy kind of comment, and people always ask if I'm Jewish, 
because of that. And Dave, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I think Dave has the Dave is like you know projecting that outwards. Like Dave, absolutely, like you can tell, like it's it's sort of that dark sort of like Jewish irony, if you will. And like self-deprecation. As yeah, well. self-deprecation is a big part of it. Uh, but being able to, but being able to sort of look at yourself and kind of rotate the reflection, you know, forty-five degrees, and just kind of look at it from a a funnier, maybe less depressing angle is, I think, a you know, a powerful tool, um, and it's one that, in doing so, you sort of you open up something that can be like deeply personal into a different kind of light where, where, where it can kind of make sense for other people. And I think that's, you know, when we hear a lyric, like met failure in Australia, et cetera, like we, we can all sort of see the, the way that it universalizes the, the, um, the triviality that he feels, you know, that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it relates, like, as you were saying, <clears throat> to shit posting and like diary posting in the same way, because, you know, like we are sincere posting, like all of us, like when we are shit posting, like, you know, there's a grain of truth in all of the just kiddings, you know. And... I don't think I've ever lied on Twitter. <laughs> not one time. It's like, you know, you yeah. launder these emotions through humor, through these little non sequiturs. Well, you make them mimetic. And yeah. like, that's how you make people relate to them. But like, you're hey. still like touching on like the, the heart and soul of a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's how you universalize it. And I, yeah, that's what I like about his, his poetry and his lyrics. Like, you know, something will feel like a little non sequitur and then it's like, oh no, that was actually a gut punch. So mm-hmm. I think that he's really good at switching back and forth between those two, because there's something that like black and brown blues where it's very much like in the form of just a regular country song, even in the way that it's structured. Same as something like Honk If You're Lonely. And he really made me think about the there being a distinction between the song as a specific art form that has its own like set of traditions and and rules and, and um, tricks and that sort of thing. And I think that he contrasts that really well with those songs versus something like... Uh, Ballad of Rever Ballad of Reverend War Character. So something like that is just very droning and there's a lot going on. Whereas something like Honk If You're Lonely is like, you know, flash your lights, give us a honk. You know, and I think Monty, when we talked earlier, uh, you had a little bit of a harder time as a as a new initiate. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So it's uh like like I said before, I had seen the album covers and like uh the, the name was like super provocative. And I, I think I remember like clicking on like the iTunes like preview for it or whatever. And uh, it just kind of like came off like um, like Leonard Cohen and mm-hmm. uh, the the like spoken word style of song like has its place. It's just kind of like not my jam. So I just. I, I just kind of like wrote them off for a long time. I just like again, th- this was uh, my indoctrination like this this week. I kind of like butt chugged uh, their entire discography. And, uh, and the documentary, which I really hope we get to. But yeah, it's uh, th- th- there's not a soul behind it, but I definitely prefer like the songs over like the spoken word poetry. By the spoken like, I, word, do you mean like the songs that are more in that format or do you mean his actual poetry? I, I mean, the, in the sense of like his really like like flat monotone voice over like like basically just a tune. Like 
they're, they're really like beautiful lyrics, but I, I just feel like they would hit me better if I was to read them on the page rather than like hear them essentially like um like just spoken word. Yeah, I mean he he's always I you know I definitely empathize and, and feel the same way, but you know like he's not a fan of at least not early on, you know, he wasn't a fan of his ability to sing. He didn't really mm -hmm. want to be like a, a singer. Uh, like he, you know, he knows his, his vocal limitations. I definitely feel that way. Uh, my little brother's a musician and he's, um, you know, he can sing like an angel. He's got beautiful highs and lows. Uh, and that's never been, you know, that's never been something that I'm capable of. And I, I know that feeling. And I think he has a, he sort of leaned into it sort of in the second half of things he's produced, you know, definitely in Purple Mountains, definitely, uh, you know, Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea, but definitely those first couple albums, like you can, you can see that he's unsure. And I was kind of, I was actually saying earlier, like those first two albums, you can actually, you can hear very clearly that like, the melodies are being at least helped along, if not if not sort of created by uh, Malcolmus. Like like Malcolmus is is the one telling him where to undulate, and and that's part of why he didn't like perform live for a long time because he was not confident in his like ability to perform. He mostly only appeared for those first like I don't know decade or so, um, doing poetry readings and not even doing Silver Jews at all. And he had gone to. UMass Amherst for his MFA in poetry and no one wanted to publish his book like he'd been trying to put it out he kept getting rejections from the lit mags that he wanted to be in and he only wanted to be in the most prestigious ones and he kept getting rejected and so he was basically like fuck it like you know I'll put it out as music because like you know that resonates with more people in our day and age like I mean I definitely experienced this as a poet like I did my MFA in poetry you know, I know that no one reads my work other than my friends and other poets, like other writers read my work. And like, it's this very insular community, whereas you can reach more people through music. And I think he kind of, you know, realized that, but then was still at the beginning a little bit slow to, to fully commit to it. And he kind of resented the fact that like pavement was this big band, you know, and he was like, I'm doing my thing. Like, I don't, you know, you guys are sellouts almost. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a reason that Steve Malcolmus was singing half of those songs, especially on American Water. I feel like he's all over that one. Uh, but I mean, I would also invoke the all my favorite singers couldn't sing defense yes. because I love, I really like the character of David Rubin's voice, even on those early records where, um, you know, maybe it's not, maybe it's not like the strongest technically. I mean, he's writing songs that he can sing and i think that that's that's a skill in itself to be able to I mean, kind that's, of that's like a huge part of his whole like every every silver juice song ultimately can just you know be played the same way that he wrote them which is you know he's like me man he's probably he's like the both of us man he's just playing cowboy chords like he's mm -hmm. he knows he's not you know, he's he's not a fucking jazz man. He's not over here, you know, cranking out diminished chords and shit. I mean, he's always made it very clear that he was like a lyrics first type of guy. Like, you know, the lyrics were his art and like the backing music was just like backing music, you know, like he was never like, oh, I'm going to be the 
best guitarist or the best vocalist or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that's another yeah. reason I always really gravitated towards those like poppier songs or like the, you know, the country songs, because he's writing in a much different tradition. And I think that it makes a difference, I think, uh, when he's given that template and he's just kind of playing around with it because he's a very able writer. Like he, he knows how to turn a phrase so he can really take something like that and uh, and make it his own as he has done countless times. I remember this one time in like 2021 or something, it was like while I was on my master's. So I was thinking a lot about form and poetry and rhyme and meter and all of that kind of stuff. And I don't write that way. Like all my poetry is like basically free verse. Like I kind of have like a little bit of a scaffolding of form in terms of like, you know, this one's in couplets, this one's in triplets or like something like that. But like, I don't write in like iambic pentameter or rhyme and he doesn't either in his poetry, but um, I remember one time I like I had just submitted a bunch of stuff for like my uh, MFA like anthology, so I was like really I had like poetry on the brain that day, and then me and my friends from the course like went and got drunk, and then I was drunk biking home, and I was like listening to Silver Jews on the way back, and Random Rules came on, and like you know it all rhymes and it does have such good meter, which is important for music, obviously, like with just like the rhythm of it. But mm-hmm. I just remember being so impressed that I was just like, oh, wow. Like, cause like, I do feel like a lot of his stuff, if you just put it on the page and it didn't have the music, it would still read as poetry. And mm-hmm. that's impressive that he's like able to come up with all of these rhymes like that. Like you can tell that he painstakingly does write these lyrics, even when they come off as colloquial. It's like, you know, that came up when he sings it, it comes off like conversational, but then you're like, that all rhymed. Like it had a very set. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's cool that, you know, he, that kind of poetry background that he has kind of shines through. Mm-hmm. And so much of that songwriting, just like lining up rhymes, it becomes a game so quickly because especially when you're like a competent uh, word cell uh, and you know what you want to say, then it's just about kind of putting the pieces together in a way that m- makes the most sense. And uh, that's something that I, that's something that I really picked up from him for, you know, my own writing. And now I find very fun about trying to cobble something together. You... Yeah, I really respect like anyone like you guys, whatever, like who who write music, because I have always like just like completely struggled with that concept. Like I love music. Music was my first love, like before like literary writing. And for years in my 20s, after I graduated college, I didn't do my MFA until I was 28. And in the intervening years, all I cared about was music. Like my friends were in the music scene. That was like my passion. Like I I wasn't even reading that much poetry. I certainly wasn't writing it, but I just always thought like, yeah, I can write like lyrics, I guess, poetry that could technically be lyrics. But like the idea of then having to set it to music and having it have that rhythm has always been so foreign to me. Like I'm really impressed by people who can come up with like the whole package, you know? I feel like I can't write anything but lyrics doesn't matter what i try they start rhyming, and you're like man i've just created this whole fucking cadence and this is just i can't stop it's like a disease (laughs) i find that with i another reason why it's just so impressive to me that he does both uh so well is just i i feel like if I were to try and write a poem, there would be nothing that I could say in a serious way 
that could be that could be delivered in the manner of a poem. I don't know if I feel like there's maybe more profoundness that needs to come across or more meaning, whereas you can make a song and it's just kind of like fun. I mean, I know there's like E.E. E. Cummings will just play and that's pretty cool, but no way that I would be able to achieve that. I don't know. The way I look at, at, at poetry, um, honestly, the same with music is is that it's more it's more about evocation than it is provocation you know like you can't make someone do anything but but sort of react right and that's why good poetry is is evocative you know like it sort of you find you find the words that that evoke a certain feeling uh you can't provoke that feeling in someone i don't think i don't think it works that way uh and that's something that's very clear to me and 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 not just poetry but in but 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 in song it's a different it's a different process it's the same process but it's but it's a different process it's a i don't know i mean burman's were like really soured on poetry in his later years like in that documentary he talks about how poetry is like trying to communicate with the world by drawing on an obscure frozen pond in Wisconsin with song, like he's limited, you know, in terms of having to fit within some, some sort of form as in, you know, like a song, but, but, but in that he finds this different kind of freedom of being able to sort of, if he finds the right, the right words, you know, you're, you're able to actually do maybe a bit of provocation as opposed to evocation, which I think is, you know, it's hard to have a handle on one, let alone both sort of approaches. It's bewildering to me. And that's why we all have autism about this sort of thing. <laughs> he was able to achieve a feat maybe no mortal man should be able to. <laughs> Cass, I know that you had something that you wanted to read. I think that you're probably the most familiar of all of us with his poetry. Um, I'll edit out any dead air for you to find that if you want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I bookmarked it. <laughs> yeah, so I have a copy of Actual Air, which is his poetry collection. Oh my gosh, I'm like, why not? I was using it as a coaster. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's really good. It came out like his label, Drag City, released it themselves. I want to say in like 1999 or around then. Mm -hmm. And at first he was kind of averse to that, I think, because he wanted to get published by like a legit publisher. But this ended up being way more successful for him because like he had like fans on that label. So like, you know, people who would not normally buy poetry ended up buying it, which I think is like really interesting and kind of indicative to me of like where the poetry scene is going these days also. Like I do think that the mainstream literary establishment like is kind of dying. Like all the times that I've published as a poet in mainstream lit mags, like the more established ones, I don't get any engagement. But the times that I publish with like, just like random online, like alt lit mags, like, People actually read it and that's what matters. And so ultimately, I think that that's probably what helped him come to that conclusion too of like, how can I just like reach the most people with I'll my just, stuff? I'll just preface by saying that in the early 90s, you know, we'll say early to mid 90s. So, you know, from like 1991 to 1995 or so, you know, the Silver Jews were an art project. There was no expectation 
of anybody fucking getting anything from it other than needing an outlet. Uh, and in those years, you know, like 93, 95, um, 97, 98, Berman publishes quite a few uh, poetry collections. Um, like he published in The Baffler quite a bit. Not collections, the- just like poems. This I mean, is his only collection. Well, I mean, you know, collections of six to eight poems. Yeah. Yeah. And The Baffler. Um, like, you know, he's got a couple prose pieces there as well from like 93. Um, and he also at some point around this time in the late 90s has a, um, it didn't get published till the 2000s, but he had like a whole cartoon series that he did as well. Yeah. What was that called? February something? I've posted a few of those. <laughs> There's one where it's like a dude on a cross and he's catching it and he's like an outfielder catching a ball uh, and he's got like a, you know, a Mets hat on. Still trying to figure out what he meant by that. but <laughs> It's another cum gutter situation. Um, yeah, that is the portable February, the portable February. Um, yeah, that's, the one. that's cool. I didn't know about that. I know that uh, Phil Elbrum from the microphones had cartoons as wonder oh. how I can these he had fancy people adventures just thinking about today honestly uh, did I say this to you before Mac I feel like I did I have this theory that Phil Elverham and Cassie Berman should get married because they've both experienced <laughs> great loss yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah he got could, like lead a campaign that's that's that that should happen like I feel like those two would get along <laughs> yeah and now that he's divorced from Michelle Williams he doesn't have to go any gun control protests anymore okay well so yeah in my opinion the two best poems in this collection are obviously self-portrait at 28 which is like the most famous one but the second best one or my favorite one to be honest like i can recognize self-portrait at 28 is fucking amazing but my favorite one is this other one cassette county um and you know it has Cass in it and also Cassie Berman, Cassandra, there's many intersections here. <laughs> so um, should I read it? It's kind of long. It's like two pages. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> okay. Go okay. I'll read it. Um, I did not practice it. So sorry if I mess it up. You've read it. I've read it on Twitter before. Yeah. But that was a long time ago. That was like, okay. Cassette County. This is meant to be in praise of the interval called hangover. A sadness not coterminous with hopelessness, and the North American doubling cascade that keep going. This diamond lake is a photo lab, and if predicates really do propel the plot, then you might see Jerusalem in a soap bubble, or the appliance failures on Olive Street across these great instances. Because the complex Italians versus the basic Italians. Because What does a mirror look like when it's not working, but birds singing a full tone higher in the sunshine? I'm going to call them honest eyes until I know if they are. In the interval called slam clicker, realm of Pacific, because the second language wouldn't let me learn it. Because I have heard of you for a long time, occasionally. Because diet cards may be the recovery evergreen. And there is a new benzodiazepine called distance. Anti-showmanship, anti-showmanship, anti-showmanship. 
I suppose a broken window is not symbolic, unless symbolic means broken, which I think it sort of does. And when the phone jangles, what's more radical, the snow or the tires? And what does the Bible say about metal fatigue? And why do mothers carry big scratched up sunglasses in their purses? Hello to the era of going to the store to buy more ice because we are running out. Hello to feelings that arrive unintroduced. Hello to the non-functional sprig of parsley and the game of finding meaning in coincidence. Because there is a second mind in the margins of the used book. Because Judas Priest, source, Firestone Library, sang a song called Stained Class. Because this world is 66% then and 33% now. And if you wake up thinking, feeling is a skill now, or even this glass of water seems complicated now, and a phrase from a men's magazine, like single district cognac, rings and rings in your neck, then let the consequent misunderstandings, let the changer love the changed, wobble on heartbreakingly new legs into this street legal nonfiction, into this good world, this warm place that I love with all my heart. Anti-showmanship, anti-showmanship, anti-showmanship. So that's Cassette County. <laughs> and I feel like, thank you. <laughs> but I feel like anti-showmanship is like the perfect way to describe like him in general. Like, you know, here's this guy who has this massive body of work, but yet he is so reclusive he never tours. He's not a showman. He wants people to read it, but yeah, I don't know. I just felt like that was like his little manifesto in that poem. And I love it. And like that whole last part about like this world is 66% then and 33% now, all of that just feels so relevant these days. Like I know he wrote it in the nineties, but like the first time I read that was like during COVID, like it was like during 2020 lockdown, and I was just like, that feels really relevant. And yeah, I don't know. I just feel like it's a very universal poem. So thank you for indulging. <laughs> no, thank you for reading. Yeah, that's, uh, I read Actual Air the beginning of this year. And I was really, I mean, I, I feel like if I'm going to read something that was written by a guy whose band I like, my hopes are not high running into it. And I was really kind of astonished by how much I got out of that book. I, I would say that Self-Portrait of 28 is the one that I really um, was into, which I guess is the normal thing to say. But uh, it's incredible. Like just like his like musings on technology and everything and that are so relevant. Yeah, I remember there was this line, I think it's oh, it's right at the beginning of the poem, but it reminded me the way that the way that Brodekin had schizophrenia and would just talk about stuff as if it was other stuff. Well, everything was trout and um, him talking, Brodigan talking about uh, coming up to a staircase and then the staircase is a waterfall and there are trout in it. And there's this line in this Berman poem that says, by then having absently wandered 100 yards from the house while still seated in this chair with my eyes closed. And I really thought even just that visual was really transportative in the same way that a lot of that, a lot of those Brodigan poems are kind of like in a dream when something can be two things simultaneously that are in conflict. But yeah, it's definitely a great book and easy to find a PDF of on the internet. Uh, and now there's, 
I think after he died, it was a really hard to find for a long time. Like it, it had been out of print for years, but after he died, Drag City reissued it. So you can get it on Amazon now, a hard copy of it. I may have to spend money, which I love to do. Um, I don't know if you guys had any uh, particular snippets that you thought might be a good conversation. I know that the opening line to Random Rules has a specific significance, if you guys want to discuss that at all. <laughs> well, that's your uh, Twitter bio. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, this is Max's Twitter bio, and I would say maybe the most bipolar disorder lyric of all time. Yeah, I feel like I've posted about it so much that that is like the most mic drop lyric in the history of lyrics, like to literally just start your song like that. In 1984, I was hospitalized for approaching perfection. It's just such a banger lyric. It draws you into the song for well, sure. I mean, the way, you know, that's why I like using it as a Twitter bio is um, he was not, in fact, hospitalized in 1984. And, you know, like when you follow through the song, you know, like, slowly screwing my way across Europe they had to make a correction uh it's this sort of ironic magnanimous grandiose self-image that he's immediately playing with like that's good shit I, li I like that right there and it's also I don't know um I mean I've been into the silver Jews for a minute here uh but also really like you know I'm, a, I'm big into alt country in general I love there's a song by the Handsome Family. I don't know if you guys are Handsome Family fans. Highly recommend. It's like a husband and wife duo. Um, the the wife writes most of the lyrics. The husband sings and does most of the sort of <clears throat> orchestrating of the music. He's got he's got he's got a song about um, being in the mental hospital. I think the lyrics are something like. I won't get very far until the Hal doll kicks in straps of this fucking twin bed where if you brush your teeth, you get a gold star. And there's something, there's something about that in sort of all country in general playing with sort of mental fatigue going crazy and how maybe it's not such a bad thing. I don't know. I'm pretty annoyed and like to talk conspiracies and shit, but you know, I think, I think we all, I think we all feel this way to, to some degree. Being hospitalized for approaching perfection is just, you know, this is this is the thanks you get for trying to fucking see anything clearly these days, I think. And it's funny the way that people will like read it through their own different lenses. Like I remember I once posted like who up getting hospitalized for approaching perfection and you know, like a lot of my followers understand that that's like a silver Jews lyric and they'll be like, hell yeah, smash the like button. Some people will probably smash the like button not knowing what it is and that's fine. But I'll get some people being like, that is the most eating disordered lyric I ever heard. And I'm like, well, that's not what he was writing about. But they're reading that through the lens of me being like an e-girl and they're like, she must have <laughs> just meant it that way. Like, you know, and I'm like, take it up with David Berman, man. <laughs> mm -hmm. My reading was always when you've just been up for three days because you can't sleep and you're like, ah, there's a glow about me now. Yeah. I can see the future. I'm approaching perfection. Radiated. Yeah. So, but I, I mean, Max, I like your reading of that, obviously different and more layered than mine. This, uh, this is almost sarcastic self-mythologizing. It does feel, it feels like that though. Like where it's like, you know, people are saying that you're 
mentally ill, but you really feel like you're getting to the core of something. Like, I do feel like that's what he meant by it. <laughs> yeah, you're picking at the scabs of a feeling. Like, you're really, like, intrusively getting, uh, digging deep into a thought. And, uh, like, following the breadcrumbs. Like, uh, two plus two equals five. And, like, you're willing to, like, take the leap to find out. Exactly. I mean, that's the... I don't know. It's funny because like Dave's like, I don't know if you, if you dig into, you do a little digital forensics, you know, he's got like, he has like a, like an old Reddit account. Um, not like, not like a self-monikered one, but, but he has like a, you know, like a Reddit shitposting account. And like the, <laughs> whole, the only thing that he ever did on that account was, uh, he, he, he was on this, um, like this one, like just this one subreddit. Um, it was like the what? What the fuck is it called? The the star whatever codex. Um, it's basically sort of, it's basically like a spot for like libertarians and you know pseudo anarcho capitalist sort of thought. Uh, they're really big into sort of the conceptual framework of effective altruism and the like mm -hmm. and berman literally would like jump into the 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 weekly thread and like just shit talk and troll these libertarian dudes like to the point that like i i went back and tried to like count it out i think he got banned from that reddit for like you know one or two weeks at a time like put in time out like six or seven times over the course of oh like eight months. Like he'd be, he kept fucking coming back. And it's funny, like, you know, I don't know. I think about a lot, particularly the past year, particularly the past couple of weeks, to be fucking honest. But man, what would he have had to say about COVID, about Israel, Gaza? I mean, because <laughs> he really like, you know, it's interesting because he has like a, if there's any particular lyric that really stands out in my mind for right here right now you know 2023 storyline fever man literally every time we do a new thing and and discourse about you know whether it's like fucking ukraine or or body count discourse or fucking israel or whatever like every time in my head as i'm scrolling the timeline i'm just singing storyline fever myself mm -hmm. and his father was definitely oh, you know we, took part in a lot of that you can get deep into his dad and um like all right you know the the track on there's a track on bright flight called transylvania blues well his dad went to the university of transylvania mm -hmm. and that song there's not even there's not even any lyrics you know it's just like an instrumental there's very clearly a lot of songs that have an incredible amount to do with his his father and his relationship with his father which like these lyrics are still i think pretty universally applicable and have nothing to do with like just listening to them and hearing them and internalizing them like you would i don't think that you would ever without having any sort of history on the person singing it saying it to you like i don't think you'd ever have any fucking clue that it had anything to do with like a a very fraught father-son relationship but like time will break the world is one of those that absolutely 
is about his dad to at least some degree. Mm -hmm. I think How to Rent a Room is in in the same vein as that as well. Yes. How to Rent a Room is my my favorite track, like of their entire discography. I think it's excellent. Yeah, another another hell of a way to kick things off. Um, for for the uninitiated listener, David Berman's father was Richard Berman, who is a he's he has a nickname Doctor Evil. Um, he was like a lobbyist, like a lawyer, public relations guy, but just a real, I think, unabashed piece of shit guy. Uh, even much blind by David Berman himself, I think they had a pretty a pretty fraught relationship. And uh, yeah, that definitely comes across in some of his music for sure. Yeah, and we were looking earlier. So, well, do you, I was going to say the thing about what his dad said as like the obituary, but did you want to tell oh, no, about fuck. the other thing? Yes, first? do that. No, let me pull this up. Okay, I gotta. Yeah, so they like had like a bad relationship. He thought his dad was a piece of shit. He was evil. He, you know, was a lobbyist for industries that David Berman very much disagreed with. And I guess his dad was also just shitty to him growing up. Like, basically called him a pussy and stuff. Like. You know, his parents, I think, were divorced and then he was like forced to live with his dad because his dad thought that he was like a little pussy ass bitch and he needed to like, you know, make him more of a man. So they always had a bad relationship. And then David ultimately like disagreed with him like politically and all of this. And so when he um, was like sort of towards the end of Silver Jews in what, like 2008, 2009, 2009 yeah. he like wrote on his blog, um, you know, he like kind of came out and was like, my dad's this guy. And like, you know, I felt like maybe I could make music and that would like, I don't know, do something <laughs> to counteract like my dad's evil deeds in the world or whatever. But he's like, but it doesn't like, I don't know. He kind of like got depressed about it and kind of gave up and whatever. Mac, you got a browser open. Yeah. While I'm reading this, go to bermanexposed.org. And you'll, you'll see what's there, uh, but I'll just read to that point and then y you tell me what you see. Uh, but let's, yeah, let's hear the blog. So this first. is from his blog post in 09 uh, after the Jews are officially kaput. Dave says, now that the Jews are over, I can tell you my gravest secret. Worse than suicide, worse than crack addiction, my father. You might be surprised that he is famous to know that he is famous for terrible reasons. My father is a despicable man. My father is a sort of human molester, an exploiter, a scoundrel, a world historical motherfucking son of a bitch. <laughs> Sorry, Grandma. You can read about him here at BermanExposed.org. Now, I haven't been to this site in a while, but I noticed after Berman died, and a lot of people were writing obituaries, a lot of people were talking about Berman again, the URL has been purchased by his father's lobbying organization. And that URL now redirects you just to his website. And Which that's just some real Dr. Evil shit. That is some world historical motherfucking son of a bitch level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. First line of the About Us page is Berman and Company isn't your average PR firm. That's right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Our mission is to change the debate, which I guess they it's have just, done. So fucking like, the, the second that his son dies, he's like, yep, this is a marketing opportunity. And he when when David died, he put out like a two sentence. Like, I'm pretty sure they that they'd been estranged for a number of years at that point. But he put out like a two sentence little like obituary statement that was just like 
my son had his difficulties, but I I wish he would have known how much I miss I would miss him or something like that. Like yeah, where it was like control you know, like fucking suicided son. Like that's like as bleak as it gets. Yeah, yeah. Like where it's like you know your first line is about his difficulties. Like you're already basically shitting on him, and then it's like oh, but like I have to kind of say like he didn't even say I love him, but like oh I'd miss him. Like, okay. Uh, I I feel like it's been much publicized that I'm currently in community college and in my uh, in my technical communications class, uh, Richard Berman was brought up as an example of someone who is an unreliable source for news. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They specifically referenced him as like a guy who likes to lie and likes to front organizations that will lie for money. If you dig into that dude, like, you know, he's. As Dave has, I think, said in that in that blog post, you know, if there's one specific guy you can point a finger at for the minimum wage not changing since 1997, it's it's Mr. Berman. Uh, and also, I always think about um, in Time Will Break the World, there's a lyric about um, tanning beds exploding with rich women inside. Back around that time in the late 90s, uh, his dad was the lobbyist for tanning salon owners of America, which is why I'm pretty sure that song is mostly about his dad. Um, because I, you know, why the fuck is Dave Berman talking about tanning beds exploding? He, he I think he's doing a little bit of ironic inversion with rich women inside, but it's so it's it's you know, and this this blog post was like oh nine when the band was done. But he makes it pretty explicitly clear that the Silver Jews have were, you know, always meant to be, you know, in what little capacity possible, sort of a countervalent force to the, his dad's work and his sort of fingerprint and impression left on society at large. Originally, he had seen her in a, um, I don't know what magazine, but in, you know, a magazine that featured local alt-rock bands, and he was like, I need to meet her. So I get it. He ended up... I need her, man. <laughs> he, he ended up going down to Louisville and attending a party with some friends of his. I think I, I may be mixing this up with, with another show uh there was a party that he attended with cassie where he played like on his own some solo stuff liz fair also played at that show um but regardless cassie was there i don't know that he knew that she was like a massive silver juice fan no i think he found out the next morning because he slept at her house and then he woke up and saw all the silver juice yeah. records so basically what he did was like he was like i need to meet Cassie like goes to this party in Louisville 
and they didn't hook up like he just passed out at her house like so what he what he did was he walked over to her during the party uh said some dumb pickup line and then was like they're running out of beer i'm gonna go get beer do you want to come get beer with me and then like they walked to the convenience store together to go get a couple sixers uh the rest is history but like you know no, but he has explicitly said that, like, the next morning he woke up and saw that she had the whole Silver Jews discography, and he was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of, like, this is the kind of man Davis with 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 dating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the man the man literally traveled at, at the time he was living in Chicago, so it's not like a crazy drive, but, like, he went with the explicit intention of courting. You know, there wasn't social media back in back in the late '90s, early 2000s. So, marry me, leave Kentucky, come to Tennessee. I mean, it's what this song's about. Is mm-hmm. the way that he writes about love, I really like. Like even just something as simple as "I always loved you to the max." It's very simple and uh, you know evocative. Yeah, uh, and, and a little silly. I want to die in your mind. Or... I only want to die in your mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the most, like one of the most like beautiful expressions yeah. of just like pure like like non libidinal love. You know, I'm a I'm an album guy. I like to listen to albums all the way through. And you know, Bright Flight is 100 percent my favorite Silver Jews record. Uh, but there's one song that sometimes I have to skip. Uh, Remember me. Remember me is possibly the saddest love song wait i remember you isn't that what it is whatever i remember me i remember me okay that's it absolutely brutal fucking grueling song one of his yeah it's like he proposes to her and then like two seconds later gets hit by a truck and then is in a coma for 20 years and then he wakes up and she's married to someone else oh man in such cases hard it's hard to it's hard to listen to that one but yeah like going back to what you were just saying um mac about punks in the beer light um years later like in 2019 dave did an interview with what was it the believer believer.net yeah yeah and this was like right after or around the time that purple mountains came out and um he was talking about why he doesn't write poetry anymore. And one of the reasons that he said that he hasn't been writing poetry is because he's like, well, the new generation does it better. And he started rattling off like these new poets that he thinks does it better or do it better. And one of them is a poet that I really like, Hera Lindsay Bird, who was clearly influenced by him. So it's like, she doesn't do it better. She's doing your thing. Like, you know, but he's, he's very humble and he won't acknowledge that. But, um, and he mentioned Patricia Lockwood, who also was clearly influenced by him both very talented. But anyway, um, it's so funny because Harold Lindsay Bird is a big fan of his. And after he died, she had an interview that came out that wasn't about him. Like it was just an interview about her poetry. And during that interview, they asked her for like her top five favorite songs and Punks in the Beer Light was one of them. And she had to, you know, 
put a little editorializing on each, like, you know, the reasons why she picked each song. And she was saying that that lyric, haven't you heard the news? Adam and Eve were Jews. And I always loved you to the max. She was like, that's like my favorite lyric. And she's like, it sounds so absurd when it's just right there on the page, but there's something about it in song that makes it perfect. Like maybe it wouldn't necessarily work in a poem. Maybe it's a little too colloquial for a poem, but there's something about it in the song that she's like, that is my favorite line ever. And I think that that's just really interesting that, you know, he cited her as this like amazing new poet. He straddles that line of songwriter and poet. And she's just like, that inspired me. Mm -hmm. The repetition is great too. He keeps just saying, I love you to the max. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Like he did in Cassette County. Same. Yeah. Anti-showmanship, anti-showmanship. Monty Everett. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which thank you again for doing. Yeah. And I, and I, which I loved, uh, and I'm surprised that you haven't uh, been a, a Silver Jews listener. Um, a lot of uh, like during this week when I was uh, like diving into the discography, um, I really it's it, it's funny because so much of it is just like I, I'm a big like avid reader of uh, my friend's poetry, uh, like uh, and some of the stuff that goes up on there, like um, uh, Pale Towny by. Uh, Tom Will, I think, is just excellent. And, like, he's the poetry editor over at Perfect uh, Confidential, and I think that some of the stuff that he goes and posts is, uh, like, or, like, a OKs is excellent. Um, a lot of, like, expat, a lot of the, uh, like, poetry that goes on in there and Hobart. And I, I just, I really like consuming it, and I just really thought that, like, the Silver Jews was so, um, like, reminiscent of just kind of, like, reading someone's, like, like an anonymous, like, yeah, yeah. Occasionally, like each other's posts type thing. Uh, like, there's just so much beauty and so much breath, and like uh, their poetry, and it's just like, it, it's almost. I, I really think that uh, Berman just kind of feels like the long last mutual. That like he would have, he would have fit in. Uh, you know, uh, obviously aside from the, the the COVID hysteria or whatever, I'm sure he would have gone the way of Stephen King. But um, <laughs> if he just like somehow like landed ass backwards in like our like circle or whatever i just think that like we all just would have been friends with him i just think it's, he's such like a soulful emotional guy it's a weird thing because you know thinking about thinking about covid i feel like you know i have a, a lot of musician friends you know guys who who go out on big tours and you know this is how they pay the bills this is what enables them to to record shit that they actually care about is going out and, you know, touring with whatever fucking band is, is putting them on a retainer. I feel like so much of the sort of musicians jumping on to the COVID thing is about like their lives don't work. Like mm-hmm. the, none of this makes sense unless they can tour. Because the reality is, like, with streaming and everything else, you don't make, like, you can't pay the bills. You don't make money unless you get the fuck on the road and and sell merch and sell tickets. But then if enough musicians went against the grain, then they could have still gone on tour. You know, like, it's not like the place was locked down for so long. Like, the thing that was crazy to me was that so many musicians, even after things opened up, were still being, like you can't come to my show unless you're wearing a mm-hmm. mask, unless you're vaccinated, this and that. And it's like, okay, so like, it's an signaling thing at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a legitimate question with, with Dave. I have no idea where he really would have gone. I mean, you know, based on 
based on where he was at in 2019 and slate star codex that's what it's called mm-hmm. uh the 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 subreddit that he was trolling all the time um and based on that like he would have gone full bore vaccinate yourself etc you know berman was 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 trolling slate star codex and berman uh was explicitly anti-trump uh you can go back and look at some of his interviews from like you know, 2008 to 12. And he definitely was was sort of where I think a lot of us were at, definitely where I was at in, in 2008, at least, not in 2000. And in 2012, for me, I was, I was fucking, I was fucking over it. But forget it. But he was definitely, you know, like convinced of, 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 Maybe not like a revolutionary potential, but a, but of like a the potential of reform and progression and progress and 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 you know the stupid mm-hmm. bullshit the, the buzz that those words mean with Obama and he was a hundred percent on board with that which I, like you know given Bush like given W I get uh, but he never you know he never had anything he never soured on Obama as far as I can tell. I have thought about this at some length, and maybe it's just because I need to cope somehow. Uh, so I think the two the two facets are: I think that there's a a presupposition that if you're an artist, you're some sort of like left wing guy, and it's I mean, to some degree, I think it's kind of mandatory. Even like a musician like Alex G or something who has pretty much never explicitly said anything about politics. He's just like a guy who went to Temple or whatever. There is still like conservative investigation, like to see if he's actually a bad guy because he hasn't yeah, yeah, yeah. pledged yeah, any Yeah, silence is violence. And yeah, if you haven't exactly. said anything, you're basically the bad guy. So I think that someone like David Berman might, might have gotten looped in with like a John Darnielle, a Mountain Goats sort of yeah, situation. Yeah. You, I don't know if you've seen all my Mountain Goats memes, but I've been, there's something in, extremely powerful and just, it it's, it's, it's just makes perfect sense to, to just take pro vaccine taglines and, and slap them on the top of a picture of John Darnielle. Yeah. John Darnielle literally stopped performing one of his best songs going to Georgia live because it quote unquote glorifies gun violence. It literally doesn't. The song mm-hmm. doesn't glorify gun violence at all. First of all, this guy was going to commit the suicide. The song is like, literally about she, she, I smile as she takes the gun from my hand. Like mm-hmm. it's about being disarmed by love. But it's no, insane. But because he mentioned a gun, apparently, you know, he had to performatively do all of that and then obviously we all know what he was like during covid and you know about trans stuff covid stuff whatever but like during covid was the worst one where he was like you know tweeting like to get some airplane pilot fired because he said that you didn't have to wear a was mask it, on the was plane it delta or was it- yeah yeah some like literally like it was like this airplane delta number like three six one oh whatever you know, mm-hmm. the pilot said that we didn't have to wear a mask and like whatever. And it's like in like minutes prior, he had been like tweeting about like pro unions. And it's like, okay, so now you're trying to get a unionized pilot fired. Like no sense. Like you're completely incoherent. 
But what I wanted to say, and not to derail or make it go back to this, but do you know, do you guys know KB Goldtooth? He's like one of my good. Yeah, of course. The man um, himself. Yeah. yeah. We've like, yeah, podcasted a bunch of times and like, I love him, but like, we've talked about this a lot and he posted last year, like in 2022, um, which dead thinkers and writers do we feel confident would have been allies in this war from COVID and beyond? I'll go first. Dostoevsky and Norman Mailer. <laughs> Whatever, we won't go into all that. <laughs> but um wrong. But I I responded because I literally had been thinking about this so much with Berman specifically. Just the fact that he died just like mere months before all of this, and the fact that he was kind of libtarded on a lot of issues mm-hmm. kind of made me relieved because honestly, like with so many artists that I like, I mean the majority of artists that I like are libtards because like there's no way around it. Like I like indie music. So like I kind of just have to ignore that because like at the end of the day, I can separate the art from the artist even if libtards can't. Mm-hmm. And so whatever. Um, but it's still like, you know, I'd rather not know. And I've said this on I said this on KB's podcast like last year, but it's like, why can't we just bring back mystery? I don't think that every artist needs to be like having some fucking like HRified, PRified world where you have to make a statement every I I really think that it's like show don't tell is like so important the second that you're injecting any kind of like this is like a like anacachian or whatever but it's uh uh like particularizing or excuse me universalizing the particular is what you should be doing instead of uh particularizing the universal right yeah no I've had people like like, that's what a narcissist does and like of going and uh and like making like everything me 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 uh and like it like exactly for being a twitter and like explain it like a feeling and like capture a moment capture people it's not it's not like browbeat or like stick them uh to get Mm -hmm. them that goes to what max was saying earlier about evoking or provoking it's a similar exactly it's like even if you're writing like because i don't think your writing has to be political but I feel like people these days, even if they're not saying that your writing itself has to be political, they think that you have to be political as the artist. And then yeah, that yeah. gets associated with your writing. And I've had people on both sides get annoyed at me for being anonymous on Twitter because they're like, oh, you're a fucking coward. Like you're not, you know, you're not standing by your political message and like you're letting people think that you're like a liberal based on your writing. And my writing's not political in any way or the other. It's just normal writing. And I'm like, yeah, that's the fucking point, dog. Like, protect your neck, dude. I don't want people to read my writing based on a political lens. I don't want them to know who I am. Like, I am literally just like, I'm my name. And I want you to take what you are going to take from my writing. Because if you know that I'm me and you've read every single fucking tweet that I have, you've read my whole diary, then you're obviously going to read my writing differently than how it's intended, which is like to be read like in isolation. But anyway, sorry, I'm like all over the place. What I was going to say was I responded to KB when he posted that and said that I think about this all the time, but especially with Berman. Mm -hmm. I wish he was still here, but I'm kind of glad that I don't know his views on this. And KB goes... Quite amusing and easy to imagine Berman with his immense death drive still getting shit up by COVID, double masking, etc. And I said, smoking the gel off a fentanyl patch while donning a plastic face shield. Please don't make me imagine this. (laughs) Unfortunately, I can imagine it. With Berman, I have some kind of like sneaking hope that since he, you know, can follow the money, you know, to a certain degree. And his dad was so caught up with some sort of lobbying for horrible shit i would hope that he would be able to see through that the thing that gets me though and the thing that catches me up and makes me think that he wouldn't follow the money 
is that so many leftists just five years ago, 10 years ago, used to follow the money about pharma. Mm. You know, like, what was that movie with, like, Matthew McConaughey, the AIDS one? Dallas Dallas Buyers Club, yeah. Um, you know, like that movie won Oscars like 10 years ago. That could not come out nowadays. No, everybody everybody loves pharma. to hate the Sacklers. Everybody loves to hate them. Being able to follow the money with pharma and Fauci and all of it. And now like that is like not that discourse is not allowed. And so that is the kind of thing that worries me that someone like Berman, who does have that capacity, just like all these leftists that I knew years ago who are now just libtards. You know, like they used to have that capacity, but somehow the cognitive dissonance just hits and it's like you get reprogrammed and all of a sudden you just stop following the money. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the big dividing line for me because I was always a lefty guy, too. But then when all that stuff happened, I was just like, OK, so we hate that there's cops at the entrance to every public park telling us we can't be outside. Right. And, right. <laughs> and was, then when all the rollout stuff happened, I was like, wait, we don't we don't trust the government, do we? What are you guys doing? I thought that we hated the government. I thought yeah, that's we're just going to get infected with like some pharmaceutical drug that Pfizer's making bank off of in order to keep our jobs. That's leftism. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is why I got canceled as, you know, being right wing because I like upheld the same beliefs that I already had that used to be considered left wing. Uh, we're, we're all casualties on the war on noticing things. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I want to talk about the, the documentary because I feel like uh, we, we really are yes, giving yeah, we should talk about this it. too. The insane documentary of him nothing but haggling with Israeli shopkeepers uh, and talk and like crying uh, while playing. And I believe there was a moment in there where where it was beautiful. I loved it. I thought it was great. Sure they stopped themselves from saying William Tyler might have said something along the lines of um, I'm, I'm going to do the Jew thing like doing, you know, haggling. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, dude. It, half the half of the documentary was haggling. We can't not talk about it. <laughs> I will say, uh, in defense of the documentary, which I did enjoy, I did find it really humanized a man who had so much mythology surrounding him, yeah, be yeah. It because of his writing or Absolutely. because of his of, of his history. It showed him being a regular guy. Like at some point, he's making fun of Cassie for having small boobs, uh, which was a highlight. The other thing is when he's just talking to the guys after a show and I played the clip at the beginning of the episode, but it's when he says he doesn't really get the opportunity to make people happy and he doesn't really make them sad. Although sometimes he does, but uh, he says that, you know, if I gave my mother a piece of wood with David carved into it, then she would like it. But this is his, his first experience having people like yell out silver juice lyrics, which I'm sure when he was making Steve Malcolmus sing his songs for him, uh was not was not something that he had planned to do so i think that was a really a really disarming thing that that i really appreciated but then it also you know he talks about at one point he says uh you know they should just give us jerusalem that's like their third most holy place it's number one for us so they should just give it to us yeah yeah he's just like why can't the muslims just leave it's ours (laughs) so i like that portrait of uh maybe a a complicated man who like obviously i love his writing i would say that we don't see eye to eye on every single thing but um i really like that aspect of the documentary even though like you said he was doing a lot of uh a lot of haggling i, agree. I, I, I thought like the, the the walking down like the the streets of tel aviv and jerusalem were excellent like uh like how like his shirt kept like getting untucked and he looked like yeah, yeah, aggressively yeah. drunker throughout the day 
Yeah, just like um, seeing those little internal glimpses into his life. And Cassie just seems so annoyed the whole time. Like you could just tell that she was just like, I don't care about any of this Israel shit, but I'm just going to do it for my husband. <laughs> like, still an adventure. Yeah. I have a I have a interview pulled up. This is off a, a WordPress by, uh, last name is Rafford, um, a cousin of, of Dave's. And they grew up together. Uh, and Dave has an interesting... I don't know. Maybe that's another reason why why he makes so much sense to me. But but Dave moved around a bit. You know, he grew up in Ohio. He grew up in in Texas. Uh, he moved around a little bit. He um, went to high school in Texas, right? A lot of it, yeah. But 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 you know, middle school and early high school was in was in Ohio. Um, so this is a question from uh, Raffer. This is around two thousand and six so this would have been like the year before the documentary sort of just when he had converted so in 2001 he put out bright flight in 2003 he tried to kill himself which became a whole bungled thing i've shared a, a quite a bit about that on 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 twitter with with interviews about that and Basically, he tried to take 300 Xanax and smoke a bunch of crack, uh, which sounds like a great way to go out. And Cassie, yeah, so Cassie, Cassie kind of chased him down, um, tried to take him to the hospital in Nashville. You know, they're not going to let someone into the hospital for a, for a drug thing if they say no. Uh, so basically, Berman said, take me to the Vanderbilt hotel the vanderbilt hotel is where al gore hung out for two weeks during the florida recount and so cassie took him to the hotel and he demanded the al gore suite and supposedly told a bellhop that he wanted to die where the presidency died that's a whole other conversation uh not a good indicator for where he might be these days exactly Uh, (laughs) that's nuts uh, but, you know, he didn't die there uh, in the presidency has been dead a long time, but that's a different conversation. So this is a question um, from Rafferty's cousin, uh, you know, immediately following Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea. So 2001 uh, puts out Bright Flight, 2003, he tries to kill himself, 2005, he puts out Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea. Uh, so this is sort of, you know his coming to terms wanting to live for something part of that was 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 about judaism converting he's been a secular jew his whole life by Uh, the end he became more secular again right and he did yeah you know after after about it's hard to say because he, he doesn't give a lot of interviews but in the neighborhood of you know 2010 to 15 somewhere in that time frame he's sort of being sort of a jew in the in 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 the believer sense it kind of forgoes that but referred asks a question about your jewish faith as kids we were raised very secular beyond trips to church and temple on holidays i don't see religion as a great part of our upbringing as an adult what drew you to judaism dave says well, Christianity is just out of the question for me. None of it makes sense when you get down to it. Just the little stuff, like the Trinity is complete bullshit. 
Judaism is massive, and it all correlates and makes sense to me. Judaism is what helped this small group of people survive over 3,000 years without a common language as an empire after empire that tried to wipe them out, crumbled into nothing. And they are still here. And until 50 years ago, they've never tried or even fought back. The continued existence of the Jewish people is the only supernatural fact of history that I can be sure of. A couple of years ago, I realized that if I wanted to survive the next 40 years, I was going to need whatever the Jews had that made them last. Okay, that makes sense. Judaism is that thing. So he was just like, I'm about to kill myself. I'm going to become Jewish. <laughs> but it's interesting, this this whole, you know, part of this whole mystification, there's this intention of, of, of conflating Judaism and Israel together. Well, I mean, you said it yourself. It's uh, He's a kid who, like, moved around a lot and, like, wanted a home. Someone who, like, on the verge of, like, death, yeah. like, just needed a people. And, I mean, and, it makes, and if you go on, like, in the documentary, like, when he's walking down the streets, like, he's so relaxed. Like, you can tell, like, even in his shoulders, like, he's slumped over. He's finally, like, ha. Ah. He can exhale. And it's it, it's a really great portrayal of, like, like a very, like, obviously neurotic and, like, pained person. Yeah, and I feel like you see that, like, you know, he had finally gone on tour. He had finally met his fans. You know, he'd finally had all these people singing along and cheering with him. And then that compounded with the fact that, like, he had this Jewish thing that he was so obsessed with. And then it was in Israel. Like, it was, like, all of those things put together. And I think that that probably compounded the whole Judaism, Zionism thing for him at that moment. It sounds like, as as you were saying, and as whatever, like that later he kind of was able to separate those two more. But I think that in the documentary, that's probably what accelerated a couple of those sentiments. There's a there's another interview where, um, and this is, well, it's not an interview. It's like a, a series of correspondence. Um, and the, the visual artists who interacted with him wrote an obituary for him. Um, but basically, she had initiated the conversation in 2009. And basically, it said, like, I just finished watching Silver Jew, the documentary, You and Israel. She was also uh, Jewish and had done Birthright. And basically, it said in her message to him, uh, which culminated in, you know, a decade long correspondence talking about how I've felt this guilt, the Shonda, the shame about, um, you know, trying to square my Judaism with the sort of settler colonialist actions of the state of Israel and, and kind of explicitly point blank asked David how, how he, how he separates the two and, you know, how he can understand his, uh, Judaism as is it Zionist like what's you know feeling that out and you know like she sent him this email which then was responded to with like a two-hour phone call conversation uh which is interesting because it's like you know he felt like he needed to explain himself to this person that you know Dave's whole existence has has been like fuck you I'm not gonna do your interview i'm not gonna correspond with you and he tells he he, he 
I'm going to not do this justice, but he, but he, he, he talks about a, an old proverb. Um, basically, uh, the king has a dream and sees that the wheat crop this year is going to make everyone go mad. So he talks to his prime minister about it and they decide to put a mark on everyone's forehead that eats the the wheat because the reality is that, that there's no way that everyone's going to survive the winter without having to eat the wheat that's going to make you crazy. So we all put a marker on our forehead and walk into this knowing, you know, who is and, 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 and who isn't uh, been affected. And I think it's, in, you know, today, right now, I don't think that Dave would be doing anything but supporting Israel, to be honest. I mean, yeah, he he so comfortable so at home it's uh also if you live there like yeah i i, I like living here mm-hmm. he got a great price on some uh some dog and cat toys in the documentary too so i think that you know <laughs> stands to save a save a pretty penny so i think we're i think we've just about gotten to the bottom of it um something that i wanted to ask everybody and monty i know that you're new but you're welcome to participate too mm-hmm. Is if there's if there's one line or one you know stanza one bit from Berman that that really hits, I'd love to hear it. Um, I can share mine, which is um, from Trains Across the Sea. It hits pretty close to home. But uh, half hours on Earth, what are they worth? I don't know. In 27 years, I've drunk 50,000 beers, and they just wash against me like the sea into a beer. And, Mac, uh, I think I like literally posted you texting me that line on Twitter before. And bars, bars, bars. As a man who's drunk fifty thousand beers myself, that definitely uh, <laughs> the the erosive effect that, that that much Labatt Blue can have on a person. Fuck, I love Labatt. Yeah, said too. Fuck, I love I love Canadian. The official beer, beer of nice. Yeah, well, I mean, doors always open if you want to drink a dozen uh, Labatt Blues. Anybody, anybody on the call right now is always welcome. My Northern hospitality. Um, so, Cass, did you have something picked out that you want to? I'm still looking. Let Max still do looking? it. Sure. The fifty thousand beers line has always rung true for me, as as has approaching perfection. There's a line he has about um, chased by a floating axe head. You can't just shoot your way out and go. I could tell you things about this wallpaper that you never ever want to know, and I've thought about that a lot. This was on bright flights. This was a one. He converted to Judaism very quickly, uh, about two years after the fact, before he put out another album. And there's a, you know, I I did my degree in ancient history and classics. Um, probably read the Bible and three, four different translations. There's a verse in in the Book of Kings. If you're doing the New Testament, that'd be the two kings, second book of Kings, uh, verse six. It's about Elisha and the floating axe head. And basically, Elisha's a prophet. The disciples come to Elisha and they say, we don't have enough room here. We need to build a new place for us to all have enough space. And Elisha says, go ahead. And they say, will you come with us and help? And he says, yes, of course. They go down to the Jordan River, they're chopping down trees, and someone's axe head flies off the handle and lands in the river and sinks. And 
They say, this was something borrowed. It's not my own tool. What do I do? And Elisha cuts off a piece of wood. He throws it into the river. And the axe head magically floats up, connects to the new handle. And he tells the disciple to pick it up and continue building. I don't know for sure that that's uh, that Dave was reading the Old Testament. Um, he probably was in the during the Bright Flight era, but I think about that a lot. This, um, you know, his take on that uh, chased by a floating hatchet. This sort of um, this sort of makes total sense for me. Uh, at least this idea of running from everything, wanting to, you know, no, I don't, I, I don't want to. I just want it to be done. I'm sick of it. The whole the whole powerful part of that verse is Elisha says, pick it up. Gotta keep going. It's here for you. Keep going. Being chased by that floating hatchet. I think about that every fucking day, man. Wow. That's uh that's yeah, again, much, much more layered than my I drink too much <laughs> uh relation <laughs> to the material. <laughs> Um, Monty, how about you? I know that you're you're new to the material, but uh, to the uninitiated, um, it's great to to subsume the depth of a of a really influential dead uh, poet and songwriter. I was really pleasantly surprised. Uh, I wrote it off for so long, and if I had to go like uh, just really like the the gut punching line, uh, I want to die in your mind. I just think is like just one of the truest expressions of love. And I just really like that alone is Berman is just such a talented artist. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan now. And after this conversation, uh, a, a recent convert. I'm glad we were able to indoctrinate you, Monty. Yeah. Do a psyop <laughs> work. Yeah. Okay. Cass, you want to take it home? Okay. Yes. I have two. I don't know. I can't decide. And I, I feel like there's probably others that might be more resonant that I'm not even thinking of. But mm -hmm. I mean, so Darkness and Cold off of Purple Mountains, which is like his swan song about him and Cassie breaking up. He's also said he also said so in interviews that that's his his favorite. That's, yeah, the favorite song that he's song. ever written. And really? it's obvious like that song's a fucking suicide note, man. But like and like the whole video for it, like you can watch it on YouTube. Any listeners who have gotten to this point who have not seen it, like, look up Darkness and Cold. It's so good. The light of my life is going out tonight as the sun sinks in the west. The light of my life is going out tonight with someone she just met. I'm sorry. That's a fucking banger. Like, the multiplicity of meaning in those lyrics. <laughs> I, every time I listen to it. Like, I listen to that song a thousand times and every single time I listen to it I'm just like god damn this guy's a poet because like that is just so good it's so simple but it's so good um and I could say much more but I know we don't have time so I'm gonna read one stanza from self-portrait at 28 and then we'll stop all this new technology will eventually give us new feelings that will never completely displace the old ones leaving everyone feeling quite nervous and split in two and I think that that is a good note to end on in terms of all the conversation about dating apps and Twitter and the internet and alienation. And despite the fact that Berman might not have got it, he gets it. Well put. <laughs> 
Thanks, uh, thanks everybody. We got Cast Truth underscore Enjoyer on Twitter and Real Pill Max. My friends, don't you know that I never wanted this minute to end? And then it ends. I'm so sad that it's ending. And that's the end. <laughs>